I mean, thank you to everyone here um, at the Reuters Institute for the kind invitation to speak, which I, I really appreciate. It's always a pleasure to come back to Oxford and to come back to the university and to talk. Um, the other person I suppose I really should thank who, who isn't here um, is my, my friend and colleague, who, my co-author on this project, uh, who's Professor Ben O'Loughlin uh, of Royal Holloway, University of London, and, and certainly many of the ideas in this paper um, have come out of us, us talking together and debating this issue, and, uh, and his, his mark is certainly uh, on this uh, work as well as mine. Um, I suppose uh, a good way for me to start is to really introduce myself um, and introduce my sort of background and what I've done. Um, as, as was explained there, my, my background uh, is interdisciplinary and in I started out as a historian, I moved across to politics, um, and my PhD was actually focused on uh, breaking down some of the technologically determinist myths that I think have accompanied uh, the emergence of uh, new political communication technology. So uh, if we think back in time, uh, particularly maybe the late 90s, uh, what we saw was a discussion wherein everyone said that technology was going to fundamentally change politics. Uh, now what my, my PhD actually focused on was looking at two case studies where the internet had seemingly had a very differing impact on uh, political communication strategies. So the one case, the, the famous one, the one we all talk about and we, we like to talk about because it seems to prove that uh, the internet is very important and this is a good thing, uh, is the US one. So uh, uh, indeed, when I was finishing off my PhD, we were just at that moment of Obama mania and everyone was especially excited. Um, and indeed, it does seem that the internet does have a, a quantifiable impact on American politics. But if you compare this with UK politics, where it's far, far harder to find these kind of uh, impacts. Indeed, it seems uh, very hard to pinpoint examples where the internet has really changed the way, certainly, certainly electoral politics is done. And this is really, really problematic if you come from a technologically determinist angle, because we assume that technology is going to really drive forward changes. Now, my, my counter argument to this, um, which I guess kind of fits into a broader uh, perspective in uh, political science, uh, the sort of so-called new institutionalism, is the idea that institutions matter. Things like the nature of political parties, things like campaign finance law, uh, things like electoral regulation. So these actually have an impact on the opportunities uh, to use technology. They may restrain the use of that technology on occasions. And so, yeah, I come back to this, uh, my primary concern in my research really, uh, is the idea of the political institution. So in many ways, kind of traditional idea, but I think still a very, very powerful one if we are seeking to explain uh, political change or indeed uh, political continuity. Um, so I want to move on to um, what I'm going to be talking about today uh, because I think some of these ideas that I've just been discussing there run, run through this. Um, so... Ben and I were doing some work on what has been termed um, the two-screen phenomenon, or what we termed in our work the viewer-terrier. Um, and we first, I guess, noticed this uh, in, it must have been 2009, when we had a particularly high-profile broadcasting event in the UK, which was an episode of 
uh, BBC Question Time. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, Question Time, it's a, uh, a British political programme, a very high-profile programme, uh, widely regarded as um, probably the most prestigious of the BBC's uh, political output. It takes a town hall format where you have an audience and the audience asks uh, questions of uh, leading political figures or journalists who make up a panel of about uh, five people. And in 2009, because the British National Party, a hard-right party in UK politics, had uh, won seats in the European Parliament, their leader, Nick Griffin, was actually invited to be on one of these panels. And this was the first time that a representative of the, the BNP had ever been invited onto this programme. And this caused a huge public furore. There was much debate, there was discussion about whether this was appropriate. Uh, cabinet ministers weighed into this debate. Journalists argued about it in the press beforehand. And, and the end result of this was when Griffin actually appeared on the programme, it was probably up until the 2010 leaders' debate during our, uh, our election then, the most high-profile political broadcast we've ever seen in the history of UK television. And what we noticed when we were watching this was that people were actually tweeting about it as they watched the programme. So we, um, in the sort of early days, of, or relatively earlier days of Twitter, it was a lot easier to rip large data sets out of there. Uh, Twitter have kind of got wise to this and I think locked down their APIs quite a lot since then. But we, we, we got a simple tool coded that allows us to rip about 50,000 tweets out, which in itself seems like a tiny number now, um, but it seemed an awful lot at the time. It certainly seemed an awful lot when we were coding them. And, um, and we started to analyse this and think about exactly what it was that people were doing as they were watching television, how they were interacting with each other as they were watching it. And we found that what they were really doing was annotating the broadcast, either with information, comments on information that was happening on screen or entirely new information that they thought would be germane to the issue. Um, and we, we've written a couple of papers on this, but then we noticed something during the 2010 election, which was that journalists were starting to use social media data um, especially around the leaders' debate. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, we, we don't have a tradition of having televised debates of the kind that you see in the US or many European countries in the UK. 2010 was the first time that we ever had an election debate between the three major party leaders. And journalists were using this event to start to link social media data with the idea of public opinion. Um, and we thought this was kind of interesting, and uh, we also thought it was very challenging, and we wanted to think about some of the issues that this, uh, this raised. So broadly, we noted uh, that social media data uh, kind of entered into this debate in three specific ways. And on each occasion, was in some way taken to be or implied to be uh, a proxy for public opinion. So the first way this happens, and I should also point out, by the way, this is on fairly high-profile news environments. So BBC uh, programmes like BBC Newsnight, Channel 4 News, um, also were quite a lot on the BBC website where they had uh, web blogs uh, being posted on these kind of things. So this was breaking into the public sphere, if you want to use that terminology. Um, at the sort of simplest level, what we were finding is what we would call the anecdotal use of social media. 
So this is very akin to a sort of electronic vox pop. Um, and this is uh, something like an individual tweet is cited or quoted and somehow this has, is implied to have some significance. So it's quite similar to the sort of man on the street interview that we're, we're very familiar with historically. Um, I mean, interestingly, there were, some, there were some quite odd examples of this where either the journalist concerned hadn't picked up or they chose not to mention that these people they were citing weren't people off the street. We have examples in our data set, um, for example, of members of parliament being cited, but it, the, mem the public not being told that these people are members of parliament. So these aren't just <coughs> regular citizens off the street at all, these are part of a political elite. So there's an interesting tension there. Then the sort of slightly higher level um, uh, use of it to represent public opinion is what we term the trending. So there were a couple of big examples of this, and um, they tended to be focused around uh, Nick Clegg, back in the day when Nick Clegg was very popular and everyone was very excited about him. Um, and the media made a lot, I think, of the use of hashtags that implied support uh, for Nick Clegg. So uh, during the first debate, uh, both Gordon Brown and David Cameron seemed to be in a contest with each other to say how much they agreed with Nick Clegg. So one of the the buzz phrases that came out of the debate was, I agree with Nick, and lots of people started tweeting this. And the success of that hashtag was cited in the media. Also, slightly more um, humorously, uh, when the Liberal Democrats and Nick Clegg's popularity went through the roof after the first televised debate, um, he was uh, very heavily attacked by the right-wing press in response to this. And... Um, a humorous uh, meme on Twitter appeared, which was the idea of Nick Clegg's fault. So people were writing very, very spurious uh, things and blaming them on Nick Clegg, uh, being a, a sarcastic response to these media stories. And again, this was then entered into a feedback loop, was reported, and was seen to imply uh, public support. And then finally, we move on to what we have termed the semantic. Um, and what we mean by this is the use of natural language processing uh, techniques and technologies to analyse, uh, well I've said vast numbers of campaign related tweets, I suppose that's relative. And interestingly if one goes back to 2010, I mean certainly these data sets are not vast in comparison with the kind of data sets that are being analysed today. Uh, but certainly very large numbers of uh, campaign related tweets and then crucially applying an overall opinion value to it. Um, so this is what we refer to as semantic polling. Um, I can give a slightly more in-depth definition of this. So what we would suggest is semantic polling in particular is a three-part stage process. Um, first of all, it involves the harvesting of social media data. And different organisations have done this in different ways. And it is interesting to note actually that as what were once upon a time fairly relatively small scale sort of sexy internet startups have decided what they actually wish to do is monetize their product and have gained lots and lots of users um, that relationship uh, between companies that seek to harvest the data and the social media organization has become more commercialized it's become more professionalized and it costs a lot more money to do it than it once did the second stage is the pushing of this data through 
natural language uh, processing technologies uh, to attribute some kind of sentiment value uh, to it. So in other words, reading that and saying, well, is it positive or negative? Who is it about? What issue is it about? Is it positive or negative about Gordon Brown's position on health, for example? And then finally, and this for us is a very crucial point, and I think it's what I hope takes us beyond simply discussing this in the technical realm, is the publication of that data and the role it plays within public debate. So as I say, a three-part process, harvesting, reading, and publication. Um, I'm sorry, this is rather small, uh, but just as an indication of the kind of uh, data that was churned out through this process, um, I've put side by side um, what the traditional pollsters found in the televised uh, debate, as opposed to some of the semantic research firms that were ab actually publicising uh, their data. Um, and you'll see uh, some of them are, uh, or there are greater similarities or differences depending on which ones you look at. One interesting thing I would note straight away, and I think this speaks to some of the themes I'm going to be talking about later, is note how there isn't, at this stage, a settled way for presenting that data. Those numerics are shown in very different ways. So, uh, Linguamatics, uh, which is a, a Cambridge-based uh, semantic analysis firm, have gone for a more traditional opinion pool style breakdown of that data with percentages. Um, Semocast have gone for a positive-negative rating. Uh, Tweetminster have gone for a, a, a decimal uh, system, uh, but with, not with percentages. So there isn't even a, a standardised way of uh, presenting this data. But this is the kind of information that was in the public sphere. This was available to you through the media, through the BBC website, various places that you could have found this during the election campaign. Um, I would suggest that if we look back on the 2010 uh, election, semantic polling starts to rage, and the emergence of semantic polling starts to rage um, certain core questions that we, um, we should be thinking about. Um, so I would say it was on the, it's an important point to make. It was on the periphery of this campaign. I mean, one interesting observation is actually, I mean, lots of this stuff was churned out by technology journalists, not by political journalists. Um, but nonetheless, it's going to become a bigger, we would have to a bigger part of measuring public opinion. Um, so one obvious question is, well, what can social media tell us about public opinion? Um, what are the limitations of what it can tell us? Might be a different way of thinking about this. Um, and, and something I particularly want to focus on today is this, this next question. Does it actually challenge paradigmatic conceptions of what public opinion is? Do we actually really need to think our definitions and our understanding of it, or the way we explain it to the public? Also, how do we and should we be regulating this data? So, something that's worth pointing out is all of those kind of numbers that I've just showed you, they just appeared. There was no methodological transparency. There were relatively limited explanations of how those numbers were produced. And that, in an electoral environment, is actually quite troubling. Because I think in the future, these questions are going to become more, not less, relevant.
So the project we embarked on uh, was to address some of these questions and the, and the way we, we sought to do it, and it's still an ongoing project, we're, we're sort of two thirds of the way through it, um, was to undertake in-depth interviews uh, with people who were involved in this process. And we, we sort of divided these into to five uh, subgroups. Uh, data consultants, uh, which is a slightly unwieldy phrase, but by that I mean the kind of people who are actually producing the semantic data. Uh, political party officials, uh, election regulators, um, again, and not a perfect phrase, but um, traditional pollsters, by which I mean people producing uh, sort of traditional polling data, but that might be through uh, an internet methodology, that might be through a, a telephone methodology. And also the journalists who are reporting and covering these stories. And we're looking to produce three, um, three outputs on this. Uh, one of which is already out and published, which is a working paper on uh, regulation. You can download that on the LSE website or, or drop me an email and I'm happy to send it to you. Um, a theoretical paper dealing with uh, conceptions of public opinion and how they've evolved historically and what semantic polling does to that. Um, that's under review at the moment. And then also an empirical paper, which is going to draw on our interview data, which we're hoping to get off in the next, next few weeks. Um, so, uh, sort, of a, a, sort of a quick uh, account of what our interview data said. And one of the things that really came out, especially talking to the traditional pollsters and the politicians, was they were very, very sceptical about social media data. Um, their arguments were kind of these sorts of things. It isn't representative. This was a big issue for them. They were saying it doesn't represent the population, therefore it's no use. Um, and, and crucially, they drilled down on this. And they said, well, Twitter users, uh, Twitter users are um, abnormal uh, compared to the rest of the population. They tend to be younger, they tend to be more affluent. And uh, Twitter users commenting on politics were even more abnormal, and I say this as a Twitter user who regularly comments on politics, uh, because they're more interested uh, in politics. And of course, we actually know that most uh, political campaigns are focused on floating voters, they're focused on people who don't really take that much interest uh, in politics. And then also that this, this whole point that the data actually isn't terribly predictive. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a whole heap of problems in that, that comment about what the nature of product predictivity is in public opinion data anyway, but this was a big issue uh, for them. Now, if you're going to, um, if you'd indulge me for a second, I'd like to uh, use a literary example to illustrate something that occurred to us as we were thinking about this. Um, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with it, um, Sellers and Yateman's book, 1066 and all that, is a wonderful and very humorous history of England. Uh, basically, their, their starting point was that they took um, the kind of things uh, their they were both school teachers. They took the kind of things that their students had written in exams and they wrote a whole history based around uh, these slightly uh, cliche bending and humorous comments. And one of my very, very favorite uh, parts of this book actually relates to the, the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, uh, which is a, a very important event in English history, um, and it's a very important if one looks at university syllabuses and school textbooks, because it's basically the point 
where one school textbook ends and another one begins because it's the end of the Middle Ages and it's the start of the early modern period. And, and, and Sellers and Yeatman write this wonderful paragraph where they say, um, noticing suddenly that the Middle Ages were coming to an end, the barons now made a stupendous efforts to revive the old feudal amenities of sackage, carnage and wreckage and so forth to stave off the Tudors for a time. They achieved this by a very clever plan known as the Wars of the Roses uh, because the barons all picked different colour roses in order to see which side they were on. Of course, the joke here is that history doesn't work in that way. It doesn't work with neat dividing lines where suddenly one period you have sort of barbarism and then the next period you have early modern sophistication. But very often we think of history in terms of dividing lines. Now, if we think of the history of public opinion research, that passage actually I think is very prescient. Um, and indeed, the, the title of the paper we've submitted uh, on the sort of history of public opinion uh, research is 1936 and all that, referencing that title. Um, some of you will be uh, familiar with this story, which is the 1936 election in the United States. Um, the Literary Digest was a magazine, uh, very famously ran election polls where they would distribute uh, postcards to their mailing list, which was um, largely gathered uh, by using telephone directories and car licensing uh, registrations. And uh, they would get them to uh, get these people to decide, say who they were going to vote for. And in the previous elections for the past 20 years prior to this, they'd had a very good rate of predicting the election. They would normally get about 2 million people voting in their polls. And uh, in 1936, they ran this again, they got two million responses, and it predicted that Alf Landon, the Republican candidate, was going to comfortably win the election. Um, this young upstart, upstart, a guy called George Gallup, ran a survey with a much smaller sample. I think it was about 50,000 of But the key point was that Gallup's survey was based upon a random sample of the American population. He predicted exactly the opposite. He predicted that Roosevelt would be re-elected. And of course we all know how this turns out. Roosevelt is indeed re-elected and, and I mean this is a quote I pulled out of a recently published article which basically says this is the turning point. The straw poll dies, it's, um, it leads to a wholly new form of public opinion research. This is the moment when we enter uh, the moment of modern public opinion uh, research. So, uh, we could, if you like, view uh, the emergence of semantic polling through the prism of this event in 1936. And, uh, and if you like, if we sort of take the 1936 and all that approach, this leads us to, I think, two uh, distinct readings of how we understand the relationship between social media and public opinion. One of which is the quite negative one we encountered in our interviews, which is a kind of back-to-barbarism approach. We're going back to the bad old days of straw polls and the literary digest. We're looking at non-random samples. This is a very bad way to think about public opinion. Um, however, what we sort of offer in, in our paper is maybe there's a different way of thinking about this, a more positive way, which is to start to think about some of these older debates and whether we can reconceptualize them or whether we can reconceptualize public opinion and in particular challenge some of the paradigmatic assumptions 
that kind of come from this reading of history, that 1936 was this important moment where opinion polls, uh, opinion polling came to be really the, the only significant method we use to understand public opinion. And so what we'd like to do uh, in our paper, what I'd like to talk to you now, is to maybe think about some of these debates about how we define uh, public opinion and whether there are lessons to be learnt from that as we enter a period in time where undoubtedly social media will continue to be used as a proxy for public opinion. And in particular, um, what I've done is broken this down into five uh, dualities about how we understand public opinion, um, and I'd like to go through those uh, with you now. One of the interesting things about the emergence of public opinion polling methodology, and Susan Herbst makes this point in a really excellent book on the history of uh, public opinion polling in this period, which is sort of 1930s, 40s and 50s, is that it's part of a broader quantification of the world. So many, many processes are being uh, uh, quantified. I heard a really interesting story actually the other day, which is a, a nice little illustration of this. But during the First World War, uh, code breaking was largely done by classicists. So these were people who like translated Sanskrit and read all sort of Greek scrolls and stuff. Um, by the Second World War, code breaking was largely done by mathematicians. So there is a broader process going on here, and the emergence of opinion polling is, is part of this. But Herbst goes further than this, and she argues that the power of numeric opinion polls wasn't just to be found in the value they offered about public opinion per se, it was to be found in their symbolic value. They implied modernity, they implied democracy. And that gave them a particular authority, which other research methods didn't have. Um, and so one of the interesting things then, I think, that, that comes from our, our interviews, and in particular people doubting the value of semantic polling, is they, not only do they talk about things like representativeness, but they imply a symbolic value for that. And maybe then, if we want to understand the real value of social media research, we should perhaps look to other research techniques. So I would flag up, uh, I mean, two obvious examples here as the ways we might um, <coughs> think about this. One of which I guess is the kind of obvious one if we look at the sort of qualitative, uh, quantitative paradigm, which is uh, the focus group. So the focus group is a, uh, a particularly powerful research technique. It came to prominence particularly in politics in the 1990s. I mean, very much associated with the Clinton White House and, and New Labour um, uh, in the UK um, and also the SPD in Germany as well. So the third wave models of politics. Um, and interestingly as well, I think when we look at focus groups as a model, what it does is it informs quantitative research. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a symbiosis between the two. So um, uh, focus groups are used to inform question setting and then they're also used uh, to, to respond to the outcomes of that and to test various messages. So it may be that we start to see semantic polling as a form of vast online focus group. Uh, and that's a very interesting uh, way of thinking about it. <coughs> but another possibility, going back a bit further, uh, interestingly, a, a sort of a, a con 
a contemporaneous uh, research uh, technique to the emergence of uh, opinion polling is the British mass observation. And this sounds very, very quaint to us today, but it's a, it's a very interesting research technique wherein people were asked to keep diaries. And um, then they would fill in their diaries and they would post them back to researchers at the end of each week. This is in the 30s and 40s. And, um, and I mean, you can go to the public records office in, in Kew and you can see these things and they're astonishing level of richness in, in them. Um, now, of course, in some ways, this is a very flawed research technique because only certain people keep such diaries and only certain sort of social groups are, are likely to be represented within that. But in terms of the kind of richness you can gather out of this and how things like politics, for example, fits into people's daily lives, then there's a huge amount of value there. And it may be that we need to think about social media from that kind of perspective. But then going back to our definition of semantic polling, I think if we do start to think of these techniques as being uh, qualitative, this raises, I think, a real challenge for journalists in particular, because how do you introduce qualitative data into the public sphere? Um, it is very hard, I think, um, when we do exist in a, a, an, a, particularly an electoral reporting paradigm where a huge amount of discussion is focused on opinion polls, a huge amount of discussion is focused on predicting who is going to win. How do you then deal with qualitative data which doesn't seek to explain elections in that way or discuss it in that way? So I think it may be that if we are going to go down this road, then journalists need to develop a new language for talking about this kind of data. And that's I think, is hugely, hugely challenging. Um, I want to talk a little bit about ontology and epistemology as well. Because if we go back to the sort of founding fathers of uh, opinion polling, if you like, they're making a dual claim, which is they have a method in the form of a representative opinion poll to discover a reality, which is public opinion. And I think um, this definition has very much come to dominate our understanding of public opinion. Um, in other words, and uh, you know, I could give you a couple of citations for people who almost use this definition word for word, but public opinion is what opinion pollsters try to measure. In other words, we get quite a circular <coughs> definition based upon methodology. Um, but actually, I think that definition is quite ahistorical because I think it misses different uh, definitions of the public that have existed historically. So, I mean, uh, sort of, I guess, one that still has a fair amount of contemporary currency is the um, Enlightenment idea of the liberating public. So the public is a body that gets together and debates and discusses. I mean, the, the obviously, contemporaneously, Habermas is the most significant figure offering, offering that definition. But we might also throw into this mix late 19th century um, definitions of the public and in particular the focus on the crowd I mean Le Bon is the classic example of this um, in fact I mean it's interesting I think when we talk about public opinion as a sort of more general observation how we define it tends to very often be modulated by the particular political fears and hopes of the time so Le Bon at sort of the early stages of mass democracy is quite fearful about the potential of the crowd and 
and the kind of damage that can do to a healthy society if, if uh, the wishes of the mass are followed. Um, on the other hand, George Gallup later, about 30, 40 years later, writing about the opinion poll, is very optimistic about the potential of tapping into public opinion and making a better democracy. Uh, so we do find these kind of, uh, if you like, definitions that reflect contemporary political circumstance. Um, I mean, another really important question, though, which comes back to this claim, well, does public opinion even really exist? I mean, the classic example of this is to be found in the, uh, re the, the famous survey where they asked uh, the American uh, public, are you in favour of repeal of the Public Affairs Act? And I think they found that most people, about 60% of people, were in favour of the repeal of the Public Affairs Act. About 30% were against, and about 10% of people didn't know. Unfortunately, the Public Affairs Act did not even exist. It had been created as an experiment to see whether that people's opinions could be solicited on something that was wholly fictitious. And, of course, it could be. So the interesting question we get here is, well, is the act of measuring public opinion creating it. And this is quite thought-provoking if one thinks of the possibilities of semantic research techniques, because unlike well, either opinion polls or focus groups, you don't have the artificial stimulus of someone asking you a question. These, well, we have to be careful about how big a claim we make here, but it may well be that these waves of opinion occurring in social media are to some extent organically generated. Um, but they're certainly not generated by a researcher going in and asking a question. And that's a very, I think, interesting challenge for traditional public opinion uh, research techniques. And I think in many ways the holy grail here is integration again. So can you use what's happening in social media as a way of priming your more traditional research techniques? This is a really interesting debate that I wasn't really um, aware of until I started researching for this paper. Um, we have very much arrived at a point in time where we think of public opinion as being uh, methodologically individualistic. In other words, public opinion is thought of as the cu accumulated preferences of lots of individuals. So in other words, a, a pollster will go and ask a thousand people and they'll tot up the numbers. Um, but this was a very uh, hotly debated subject in the early days of opinion polling. So in the very first issue, in fact it may be the very first article in Public Opinion Quarterly, which is the, the house journal of American opinion pollsters, Allport makes a very, very forceful um, claim that public opinion is nothing more than the accumulated preferences of individuals. And he, he attacks people who talk about public opinion as a sort of collective or animalistic entity. And says this is all, you know, this sort of, it's a metaphorical nonsense to talk of public opinion in this sense. However, if we look at the work of Henry Bloomer, and there's a couple of articles I've referenced up there, he offers a very different definition of public opinion. And his argument is actually it is a collective endeavour. And, and crucially for him, it's the outcome of social processes. And he, he argues that the public is actually distinct 
from uh, either the crowd or the mass. So the definition of the crowd he, he offers, sort of building on the work of people like Le Bon, is a group of people who are wedded together by a, a similar emotionally grounded view. Um, in contrast, the public for him may have disagreements, but they are engaged in debating about a specific issue. So in that sense, they're more deliberative. And the mass, on the other hand, is, is an even broader group, which is um, a large group of people within society, but they may actually not be plugged into policy debates, they may not know a huge amount about policy, they're quite individualised. Um, and interestingly, his, his, his sort of critique of political evolution is actually we shouldn't be, unlike Le Bon, he says we shouldn't be fearful of the crowd, we should be fearful of the mass. We should be fearful of people who don't really know that much about politics, but who, who make up their opinion on a whim or come to their opinion very rapidly. In, contra in contrast to the public who are sitting there engaged and debating. So his definition of the mass is actually quite similar to the opinion pollster's definition of the public. Um, and when he starts to talk about the public, he argues, well, actually, not all opinions are equal. The example he uses is an archbishop. He says, well, if we think of public opinion as a social process, surely the opinion of an archbishop is more important than the opinion of a man on the street. Because actually, the power of the archbishop to influence debate, influence uh, discussion, and ultimately influence that man on the street is far greater than the reverse relationship. Um, so I suppose in the sort of social media era, we might sort of take uh, Lady Gaga as being the equivalent of the uh, of being the equivalent of the archbishop. But social media is a very, a very interesting uh, environment where we might want to reconsider Bloomer's arguments, which you know I say have largely sort of been discounted or forgotten in contemporary discussion. But we might wish to reconsider actually this idea about power and influence and think about whether we do want to just position ourselves with a purely methodologically individualistic approach to uh, measuring public opinion, or whether we want to start to think about things like influence. Um, interestingly, when we interviewed the data analysts for our sample, we found some of them were grappling with this problem, but they found it quite hard to, uh, to operationalise it. Some uh, of the organisations working in this space uh, were consciously focusing their data measurement on people they termed influencers. So they were in, more interested in members of parliament, they were more interested in people who had very high uh, Twitter uh, numbers of Twitter followers. Other organisations took a more organic approach, wherein they kind of assumed that if someone had lots of followers and they said something, there would be a lot more retweets. So you can kind of use the architecture of Twitter to calibrate influence. But it's certainly something they're thinking about, which is, is interesting uh, for us. Um, there's an interesting synergy, I think, between the emergence of um, social media analytics and between uh, the emergence in the 1930s of public opinion poll uh, public opinion polling techniques 
the sort of genesis of those techniques was to be found in marketing. So as you move, I mean, particularly around the period, probably just after the First World War, what you find is a more advanced form of capitalism emerging with sort of the first really significant developments in marketing. And many of the opinion polling techniques are an offshoot of these developments. And in much the same way, um, many of the uh, social media measuring firms we spoke to, their primary bread and butter is in doing uh, corporate work. Uh, they are interested in marketing, they are interested in measuring the success of projects, uh, products, they are interested in engaging in social media campaigns for them. But I think there's a very interesting uh, tension here because on the one hand you have organisations that are essentially private and profit making, on the other hand you have them engaging in a form of public activity when they partake in electoral politics and they put their data in the public sphere in this way. Many of the groups we spoke to freely admitted that their uh, modus operandi for doing this, the reason they were doing this was to uh, gather publicity and gain publicity for their organisation. They were hoping for news coverage that would then lead to them getting more corporate uh, clients. So again, there are, there are great tensions here um, because what they will be prioritising are things like speed. Um, they will maybe be seeking to be seen to predict an election result correctly, even if their data is not actually suitable for this. So there is, I think, a great tension between these public and private interests. But we're going over sort of uh, uh, revisiting a historical event here, if you like, because those same tensions existed in the 1930s uh, when opinion polling uh, was developed. I guess we come now to the, the sort of big one that, that draws on lots of the, uh, the themes that run through the previous dualities, which is the simple question about whether these techniques are a net gain for democracy, whether they're positive or negative. And again, if we look at the emergence of opinion polling public research techniques in the 1930s, this was deeply ideological. Um, and uh, there was a particular conception of democracy. Now, I would argue this comes from a specific place. Um, it is a particularly American conception of democracy. It's crucially a very populist conception of democracy. Uh, it ties in with some of the ideas found in the progressive movement in the early 20th century. It isn't a coincidence uh, that Gallup is sort of a, a, a Midwestern farm boy, uh, where many of these ideas take root a number of decades or a few decades earlier. And one of the recurring uh, themes in Gallup's writing on this, and he spent a great many years going around talking about this, about 30 years afterwards, he was on the lecture circuit talking about the, the value of opinion polling as a tool for democratic progress, is an inherent fear of political elites. In other words, opinion polling research methods take power away from political elites because it means that those same elites cannot claim public opinion is on their side when it isn't. They cannot use public opinion as a rhetorical uh, device in the same way because you now have the evidence to combat those kind of claims. 
and it very much fits this development of the one person uh, one vote elections that was taking place at the time but more recently um, this argument has come in for some criticism I mean one very important point to make um, about Gallup's methodology in the early uh, period of public opinion polling is did it really reflect the public or did it actually reflect the voting public? Um, the reputation of opinion polling was built around uh, predicting elections. I mean, the most famous example being 1936. <coughs> and yet this was at a time where American women were far less likely to vote, where in many states African Americans were actively disenfranchised by state government. So both these groups were actually underrepresented in the sample. So once we start to get into the area of predictivity, then we start to get into the question of, well, do techniques actually represent the public um, in actuality? Um, there's the old question as well, and I think this is particularly, and I'm going to come to talk about regulation in a little second, but I think this is particularly where we start to come to issues of why things like transparency are really important, which is there is a lot of evidence, um, there is a large debate as well, to be fair, but there is a large debate, but quite a lot of evidence, to suggest that public opinion polling uh, and statements about public opinion have the ability to actually drive rather than reflect public opinion. I mean, Marsh's work is particularly uh, good here because that focuses on what happens over a prolonged period of time and public opinion trends and how does the public react to that. Slightly more critically, we might also ask the question about what is the relationship between public opinion and power? And certainly Bourdieu, I mean, uh, it's a very uh, provocative essay which I think is titled something along the lines of public opinion does not exist. Um, but broadly the argument is actually that public opinion, or what we call public opinion, is a reflection of power relationships. And we can think about some quite obvious uh, reasons why this might be ca the case, but for example, who has the ability to set the questions? Who has the ability to interpret the results? Um, and I think when we start to think about new techniques for measuring or understanding public opinion, I think there are really big lessons here for the people doing semantic polling, for the journalists supporting it, and for the political scientists considering it. I think we need to actually really start to think about what does this do for democracy? Is it a net positive? Is, are there potential dangers and downsides to this? Um, so I'd like to offer some uh, conclusions in the, the last few minutes I have here. Um, I would make a prediction for you right now, which is that these techniques are going to be here to stay um, and they will play a bigger role in the future, uh, in future elections. Um, but I will break, I think, I hope the important point that how we conceptualise public opinion is a very historically contingent idea. And crucially, it involves in response both to social circumstances, as the example of Le Bon and Gallup proves, um, and also in response to methodological innovation, so the ways, the different ways we can actually understand public opinion. Um, 
I think one of the interesting possibilities of using social media in this way is it offers us new ways of understanding an increasingly networked public. So the way in which opinion moves around a network, the way in which people are influenced within that network. So going back to the, the work of Bloomer and his ideas about how public opinion uh, people within the public are not created equal, we can start to maybe think about measuring that and understanding that process. Um, so one of the, I think, central questions this raise, this uh, our work here raises, is what is the relationship between semantic polling techniques and opinion polling? Um, I would suggest it's complex. I mean, I think a very important point to make is that they're neither substitute nor replacement. Um, they're absolutely complementary techniques. Um, but at the same time, I think we do need to rethink some of our paradigms for understanding public opinion, which have largely come out of um, the dominance of public opinion polling. Um, crucially, I don't think we should dismiss social media-based public research because they fail to meet the standards laid out by uh, opinion polling. Uh, so we shouldn't just say these are unrepresentative and thus of no use. Um, but nor should we make the mistake of assuming that we can just put some percentages up on a screen and say there are numbers. Um, we shouldn't pretend that they meet these standards either. Um, and I think a crucial challenge for both the public and journalists is that they need to develop the necessary data literacy to understand new types of information. And semantic data analysis, the people doing this, need to think about what it means for them to be involved in the political process and the kind of responsibilities um, this brings. Um, now, interestingly, opinion polls have, uh, I think, you find two different strands of opinion polling regulation. Um, in some European countries, I mean, I suppose the most famous example is France, uh, the publication of opinion polls uh, has at some points in the past um, during election campaigns been restricted. Um, I mean, this is becoming increasingly problematic in the network uh, age. And I, I mean, I think the state in France now is that uh, that ban has actually been overturned because it's essentially unworkable. Um, now, interestingly, we, we say in the US or UK, we don't have a tradition of banning opinion polls. You know, that would be awfully, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> Sort of, I mean, certainly in the US, the, the idea would fall down as a, a free speech issue. But actually, in both countries, it has been considered. Um, in the US, Congress debated it in the 1930s. And in 1967, in the UK, a speaker's conference recommended the banning of opinion polls uh, in a period of the election campaign. Um, interestingly, in both countries, it's been uh, rejected. Um, now, interestingly, if we start to think about these different traditions for regulations... Um, what would work in a semantic polling environment? Because what we've had in countries like the US and the UK where um, they haven't enforced bans is essentially self-regulation. So opinion pollsters have uh, banded together to form uh, self-regulatory groups and the key value they have um, subscribed to is transparency, methodological transparency. In other words, they agree to publish their data sets 
um, you can go and get those if you're interested. You know, every time there's a poll published in the newspaper, you can go and find the data set online. Um, and so that might well be an approach that works for semantic polling. Um, but there is, I think, a real, real tension here because many of the companies in this space are technology companies. They are seeking to make a profit by applying their uh, technologies and in particular their, their algorithms for natural language processing to lots of data. And these are essentially corporate secrets. Um, now, our argument would be, and, and remembering the point that many of these organisations entered into the political space because they saw it as a way of getting publicity for their services, is that if you enter into the political space, you have to guarantee methodological transparency. You have to leave a paper trail so as people know how you arrive at the numbers you are publishing. Uh, and in many ways, that might be the price you pay for that publicity. Now, actually, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic, actually, that these issues will be considered, um, certainly by the next UK election, because many UK opinion pollsters are now starting to think about these techniques, and they're setting up their own uh, uh, arms of their organisations to do social media research, or they're partnering up with social media research firms. And so as that occurs, hopefully um, some of the norms of the opinion polling industry, namely transparency in this case, will actually be imported into the uh, semantic polling industry. Um, I wanted to think as well a little bit about uh, challenges for journalists. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, journalists have tended to adopt a, a polling paradigm when they think about public opinion. So the data tends to be used as being predictive, it tends to be taken to be quantitative. So it's all viewed through a quantitative lens. And there's a few studies um, which have looked at the way um, focus group data has been discussed in the media, and it tends to be in a quantitative uh, way. And the, this isn't really surprising because the use of opinion polls is, is central to the way election coverage works in many parts of the world. This whole idea of the horse race, um, and this makes up a vast amount of the media coverage of uh, elections. But I would argue that if uh, social media analysis techniques are going to enter the mainstream, journalists actually have a huge responsibility. Um, because not only do they have to understand these methods, and I think this will be really hard actually, because I mean, we, we spoke to one uh, technology journalist who wrote a lot of blog entries about these techniques uh, during the 2010 election. And he said, well, this was kind of easy, this election, because I like this kind of stuff. I like understanding how natural language processing works. But this is 2010. By 2015, it's going to be the political journalists writing about this. And they're not really interested in natural language processing. So there's going to be a huge challenge as this moves out of the tech space and into the just more mainstream political coverage space, because those journalists are going to have a role explaining to the public what this data means, what kind of inferences you can make from it, what its significance is. Um, and I think that's going to be a really important service that political journalists can, can fulfill. Um, so on that note, I think that's me done. Thank <laughs> you.